Hey, good to see you all. Matt Chuala here, pastor of MCC Christian Church. And yeah, a lot going on in America. By the way, I'm going to continue on in the book of Acts today, and we're in Acts chapter 22. If you want to open up in your Bibles to Acts 22, we're going to cover that entire chapter and go through verse by verse. Um, we have riot going on in our country also. And as I've said for over 10 years now, this nation is going to break apart. It is breaking apart. This is part of the process of it breaking apart, as of many things prior to this. And we are seeing more readily geographical boundaries between those who want to live in a status hell and those who want to live in an area where there's limited government Um we're going to see some clear geographical boundaries on that developing, I believe, through the next eight to ten years. It's going to take that long for it to flesh out. But you're watching a nation in abject rebellion to God in its death throes. And you're not just watching a nation in abject rebellion to God in its death throes. You're watching an entire civilization, Western civilization, in its death throes right now. And men are going to learn there's a goodness when it comes to the rule of Christ. And there will come a day where they'll beg for the rule of Christ to be back in the land versus the rule of the statist or the Islamist or whoever else. Um, cause they're taskmasters. So while they call for freedom and liberty, um, all they're calling for is license and sin to imbibe upon. And, uh, it's an awful thing to watch a nation kill itself. So let's be faithful to Christ in the midst of it all and be true to him in the midst of it all in our lives, in our homes, and in the marketplace. We need to bring Christian thought and thinking to the matters of men in our day. We are the Lord's priests, and as his priests, we represent God to man. Amen? We also represent man to God. Very important teaching. So... I would like to begin with Acts 22, and the first thing I want to do is just give you like a refresher of where we're at, Max, bring you back up to speed with where we're at. We're in the city of Jerusalem, chapter 21, and Paul has just been dragged out of the temple, and as the people were trying to kill him, the Romans intervene and seize him, take possession of him, keep him from being killed. They're going up the staircase into the barracks, it says, which was the fortress of Antonia, we know historically. And as they're going up the staircase, Paul asked the commander if he could address the crowd. Every seasoned street preacher knows an elevated position is what you want when you're doing street preaching. You want to be elevated at least somewhat. Paul, being a seasoned street preacher, <laughs> going up the staircase looking at these throngs of people before him realized, hey, I have an opportunity here, so might as well at least try. He talks to the commander. Commander says, yeah, you can address him. And the crowd silences itself and begins to listen to Paul. And that's where chapter 21 ended. And now in chapter 22, we're going to hear Paul's defense, his apologia of Christ and of himself as a Christian. So let's... uh Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you for this time that we do have in your word. We ask that you would use it for good in the hearts and minds of everyone listening. Lord, be glorified. 
through our lives in the days ahead, we pray. May things taught here today be useful in how we conduct our lives as Christian men and women. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to go through here verse by verse. Paul begins here in verse 1. And he says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Brethren and fathers was a formal address in Judaism. So he's using the formal address in Judaism because he's talking to a crowd of Jews, right? He wants to do this because he's appealing to their Jewishness. And he wants to reach them. He's appealing to his Jewishness, to these Jews. So he uses this formal address to begin with right from the beginning, because that would mean something to the audience he's speaking to. And note what I just said, because it's important to this chapter. The audience we speak to. It's important that we tailor what we talk about, how we present it to the audience that we're speaking to. And that's what Paul's doing here. Right from the beginning, men and brethren, it's the formal address in Judaism. Gets their attention. He's one of us. He's speaking in our language. We'll give him an ear. We'll listen to what he has to say. And notice that he says, hear my defense before you now. That word defense is the word apologia, which means a defense of one's opinions or a defense of one's position. So verse two goes on and says, and when they heard that he, and when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. So he addresses them with a formal address of Judaism. He's using their language. He has their attention. That is important to do when you're addressing a crowd publicly. And he has already accomplished that at this point early on. And look what Paul says. It says in verse 3, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God, as you all are today. Notice what Paul's doing. Again, making his Jewish credentials known and appealing to their Jewishness so that they'll give ear to what he has to say about Jesus. Very important. Your audience matters. What you say, how you present it, how you present yourself matters to who you're speaking to. It's not just one schlick fits all holes, okay? You have to consider your audience. You may recall we saw Gamaliel spoke of, was spoken of back in chapter 5 of Acts. He's the one who interposed for the apostles with his wise advice about fighting against God himself. Gamaliel was either the son or grandson of the renowned Hillel, one of the most important figures in Judaism of all time. That's H-I-L-L-E-L. You can, you know, Google it later and learn about the guy. Gamaliel himself was noted among the people. So that Paul could bring this up as part of his credentials, that he was taught under Gamaliel, was very important. So he makes it clear, I am indeed a Jew. I'm born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. He's making it clear to him, I'm a Jew. And he's appealing to their Jewishness to give ear to what he has to say. 
So Gamali himself was noted among the people. He was held in high esteem. He was feared by the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. Gamaliel was. It was written of him in the Mishnah after his death, quote, Since Rabbi Gamaliel, the elder, died, there has been no more reverence for the law and purity and abstinence all died out at the same time, unquote. So he was held in high esteem amongst the Jewish people, and Paul's able to appeal to him being taught by Gamaliel. Again, Paul's audience is Jewish, and he appeals to their Jewishness and to his Jewishness and theirs when speaking to them. So verse 4 goes on, and it says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. What is the way? It's the church. It's Christianity. Remember, we already saw this. The way was the term most frequently applied to the early church. They were known as the way. Okay, this sect within Judaism. And Paul wants them to know, I persecuted these people. He wants them to know that because he's about to tell them how he became one of those people. Okay, he wants them to know his credentials are sound as a Jewish man. And he wants them to know, I persecuted Christianity. And look what it goes on and says in verses in verse five, as also the high priest bears witness, me, bears me witness and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul appeals to the fact that he persecuted those who embraced Christ. Again, his audience would listen to this. They would like this. This may win some to listen to him more. He even appeals to the fact that the high priest can bear witness to what he has done because he has received letters. He had received letters to carry with himself to those in the areas where he went to persecute Christians. So there's a public record of his persecuting of Christians. In verses 6 through 11, it says, Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? That's a great response when you come to know Christ. What do you want me to do with my life? How do I serve you? So this is a conversion experience taking place by Paul. He's sharing his testimony with them of how he came to know Jesus. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand, he was blinded. Being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Notice Paul appeals to his Jewishness and experience, his testimony of how he came to know the Lord when addressing this crowd. He does not go into depth of scripture, and some think that is bad, that he doesn't quote some scripture. I do not. 
Our testimony of how we came to Christ is powerful. Understand that. Your testimony of how you came to Christ is powerful. I do a lot of ministry on the streets talking to unbelievers. I believe Christianity spends too much time talking to one another, and they need to spend more time talking to unbelievers. And so when I go to the universities, I've been in many hostile situations, whether with a small group of people or a large crowd. And what I found is, is that when I share my testimony of how I came to know Christ, it changes the tone of everything there. People who are hostile towards me are suddenly quiet and listening, just like they are with Paul here. And what you have to understand is, is that when you share your testimony, you're degoblinizing yourself. And that's important. You're degoblinizing yourself. You know, they like to tell you, that's like the only verse they know, judge not lest ye be judged. As much as they want to say, judge not lest ye be judged, they're all judging you. <laughs> they all have you stereotyped. And some of the caricatures and some of the people in Christianity have given Christianity a bad name. And so you have to overcome that. So you have to be patient. You have to be long-suffering. You have to be straightforward, true, genuine, and you need to love them because people can sense. And I don't mean some gushy, sentimental love like the dopes that most American Christianity are talking about. I'm talking about true love, which only comes because you love Christ first. That's the only way you can truly love your neighbor. Understand that. They can sense that. So anyways, you have to be straightforward. You have to love. You have to be true. Be honest and declare the, to them the truth. And I'm telling you, I've seen time and time again where some of the loudest people mocking and attacking Christ and Christianity three hours later put out their hand and thank me or thank others in our group and say, that was the best defense of Christianity I've ever heard. You've given me so much to think about. You have to be patient. You have to be willing to do that. That's extremely important. to do. And the sharing of your testimony Hugely important. You put a human face and not just some abstract thing they hate called Christianity on. You put a human face through your testimony on Christ and Christianity. Very important to do. So Paul gives us credentials as a Jew, and he now appeals to experience and shares his testimony of how he came to, came to know Jesus. By the way, this past Thursday... May 28th, 42 years ago, this past Thursday, I became a Christian. And my testimony is written out at mercyseat.net. Just go under the About button. You'll see my name there, and you can click on my testimony. It's 23, 26 pages, I think. Try to keep it as short as I could um, about how I came to know Jesus. And by the way, Unshackled from Pacific Garden Mission down in Chicago has already recorded made a recording about my life story, coming to know Christ. And that's going to premiere or air for the first time in mid-July, about a month and a half. Um, your, your testimony is massively important. Here's a great idea. Make a little card and simply put down how Jesus changed my life. Have a quick synopsis on the back of what you were and what Christ did. Something, whatever. You know, it doesn't have to be a synopsis. Whatever you think you should put on the back that would make people desirous and then have a website there. Be desirous of wanting to learn more about Christ um, or reading your whole testimony. It costs a lot to put out little booklets about your whole testimony, right? But a little 
drop card, you're fishing. It's bait. <laughs> you know, so if someone has a heart where they're interested in the things of God, they've seen the utter futility and absurdity of this earth and the nations of men and all the evil. Um, and there's something going on in their heart. Yeah, those little drop cards are cheap. So just find somebody who's a good graphic artist. Don't look like a schmuck or a dope, you know, or something like that. Put a little effort into it. Make it look good and pass those out to people. And you never know how Christ, how Jesus changed my life because he does change people's lives. So, amen. amen. So important to do. Um, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it talks about how the saints overcame the devil through the blood of the lamb and through the word of their testimony, right? Yeah. Their testimony about Jesus and how they came to know Jesus. That's the word of the testimony. And um, another place is Revelation 19, verse 10, where it talks about us being part of those who have the word of the testimony. It, the testimony is about Jesus and about how we came to know Jesus. Very important. Not only are we able to tell people who he is, but we know who he is. That's huge. Not only are we able to tell people who he is, but we know who he is. Share your testimony with people, what Christ has done in your life. Your testimony is huge, so share it and make it known to men. Verse 12 goes on here in chapter 22, and it says, Then a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the same hour, I looked up at him. The testimony of who we are also matters. How you live your life matters. The testimony of how you came to know Christ, so important to share with people. The testimony of who you are as a person, which is talked about here regarding Ananias, massively important. Think if Ananias hadn't lived his life in the fear of the Lord and in service to him as an honest, respectable, good man. Paul would not be able to appeal to his known character amongst the Jews. Here he's able to appeal to Ananias' good character because his character could be verified. It was known by men. That didn't mean Ananias probably didn't have someone who said bad things about him because even Jesus had people say bad things about him. Every prophet, all the apostles, every person who's ever lived has had people who hate them, who detract from them. But what matters is he knows how you've lived. And if you've lived right, you can overcome, it may take two years, may take three years, people talking bad about you, your character will shine through to people in the end, and they'll rethink that. Just continue to be faithful to Christ. You understand that? Don't become bitter because someone abused you, spoke evil of you, and that type of thing. Just continue faithful to Jesus. He will rectify that in the minds of men. And it's a hardship when people do that to you, I understand but the important thing is to live your life as a good testimony. How you live your life matters always, right now, not just when you get somewhere or become somebody. It matters now. Each day you are building a reputation for yourself. That matters to how people view you as a man or a woman and as a Christian. 
Don't underestimate your plodding along, faithful one day after another, thinking, oh, is anything worthwhile being accomplished? Paul is able to point to Ananias' reputation, his testimony, to further establish his Jewishness and appeal to his listeners' hearts and minds. You never know how God will use your testimony, your faithfulness, your being true to him day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. Your reputation means something. Do right by men and don't be taken off course by your detractors. Verses 13 through 14 say, you know, Ananias came to me, he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness. He's going to give testimony. That's what witnesses do. They give testimony to who Christ is. And what he's done for them. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And here Paul is being a witness of what he has seen and heard. He's standing here before all of these people. And he's sharing with them how Jesus changed his life. He's talking to them about who Jesus is, the just one. And how this Jesus changed his life radically. Paul's testimony appears three times in the book of Acts. In chapter 9, where Luke recorded what took place from a third-person perspective. And here in chapter 22, where Paul gives a first-hand account. And again in chapter 26, where Paul gives a first-hand account again. To here, he gives it to the Jews. In chapter 26, he gives it to Gentile magistrates and peoples. Where he presents his testimony in chapter 26... Paul doesn't even mention Ananias. And he mentions other things in addition to what he mentions here to his testimony. In chapter 26, he adds things to even what he says here. Some say, why? Or they try to say it shows an inconsistency in the word of God or Paul. And to that I say, it's important to know our audience so you can properly appeal to them. Whenever you tell a story about something that happened or about what happened to you, you focus on certain things that are important to your audience and gloss over parts that would not be important to them. We all do this. All men do this. There's no inconsistency in the word of God. Oh, his story was a little different. In chapter 26, no, he was just emphasizing different things in chapter 26 that he was emphasizing in chapter 22 here because his audience was different. Here in chapter 22, it's the Jews. Ananias would be important to the story. In chapter 26, where it's he's talking to Gentile magistrates, that would be unimportant to him about Ananias. So he doesn't mention it. Understand what I'm saying? Very important. Goes on in verse 16 and says, and now why are you waiting? This is what Ananias says to Paul. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now there's some who say, oh yeah, that we're, see, we're saved by being baptized. And that is absolutely not true. The scriptures nowhere teach this, nor was that believed amongst the Jews themselves. Listen to me on this now. 
And you may recall I addressed this way back in chapter 2 briefly also. Baptism was important to the Jews because the Jewish mind does not divorce inward spirituality from its outward expression. Like ours readily can. (laughs) Baptism with water was the expected symbol of conversion, though it was not an indispensable criterion for salvation in the Judaistic mindset. This was the next step after believing. Repent, turn from all sin, and get baptized as an outside expression of what had already happened internally. That is why, as one scholar put it, quote, whenever the gospel was proclaimed in a Jewish milu, the rite of baptism was taken for granted as being inevitably involved, unquote. And we have seen that throughout the book of Acts here. And passages you can look at are Acts 8, 12, Acts 36 through 38, Acts 9, 18, Acts 10, 47 and 48, Acts 18, 8, Acts 19, 5. And here, okay, where Paul's sharing a story. Understand, listen to me now, understand water does not actually wash away sin. Those who teach salvation through baptism are teaching something false. Water does not actually wash away sin. Sin is an abstract. It is not like dirt on the body that can be washed off with water. Baptism is an outward, external, visible sign of an inward and spiritual cleansing of sin by the grace of God. That's what baptism is. So it does not save you. It's an outward symbol of something that has taken place already inwardly. So Paul had been converted right there on the road to Damascus. And Ananias knew it. And he's telling him, so what are you waiting for? Let's get baptized. (laughs) Right? So we go on here in um, verses 17 and 18. And it says, now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and I was in a trance. And I this this is like three years later that he's referring to. Returns to Jerusalem. Praying in the temple. They would love that. He's praying in the temple. He's in a trance. And I saw him, talking about Jesus, saying to me, quote, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. The Lord tells Paul, they will not receive your testimony. The reason Paul brings this up to the crowd he's speaking to is because he's about to tell them something he knows they're not going to (laughs) like. Okay? And there's a point to be, um, you know, winsome, as they say, and outgoing and nice to people. But you have to get around to telling people not only what they may like to hear, but what they need to hear. And Paul's about to get to what they need to hear. They need to hear about the whole counsel of God's word that this great salvation is for all men, including the Samaritans, including the Gentiles. He's about to tell them that. So he brings this part up. You know, they're not going to listen to your testimony because he's about to tell them something where they're probably not going to want to continue to listen to his testimony. So it says in verses 19 and 20, So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death. 
and guarding the clothes who were kill the clothes of those who were killing them. Paul thought, surely this will make them listen to me more. The fact that I persecuted Christians. That'll add to my credibility. They'll listen to me more. That's what he's thinking as he's talking to the Lord way back three years after he's referring to when he's in Jerusalem praying in the temple. But no, it wouldn't help. Because the Jewish mindset is so entrenched that the idea of Samaritans and Gentiles being part of the kingdom, no, that ain't going to work. That fact that they're part of the gospel of what you're teaching, what you're preaching, no. They cannot accept that. It is a huge stumbling block for them to get past that. So look what happens in verses 21 through 23. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. This is what Jesus said to Paul. This is part of what he has for him. Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Verse 22, and they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air. Okay, so they listen to what he had to say. He gets to this part, and all pandemonium breaks loose again, like it had prior to the Romans coming in, taking possession of Paul, and going up the side of the staircase at the fortress of Antonia. So, um, yeah, they didn't accept his testimony, did they? The Jews could not abide this idea that the gospel was for the Gentiles also, for all men. That God's redemptive plan included them, no, they couldn't accept that. And we've talked about that numerous times already as we've gone through Acts. Look what happens in verses 24 through 26 as they're tearing off their clothes, as um, as they're throwing dust in the air, and as they're uh, saying, away with this fellow from the earth. He's not fit to live. All pandemonium is breaking loose. The commander, verse 24, ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, they're binding him with thongs, they're getting ready to do the scourging, the flogging. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman? And uncondemned. When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Notice Paul here does not simply allow himself to suffer at the hands of the Romans. Why did the centurion go to the commander? Why did the centurion go to the commander and say, be careful what you do here. This man is a Roman citizen. He's a Roman. He did that because Paul had asserted his right as a Roman citizen not to be flogged, not to be scourged. It would be illegal for Paul as a Roman to be scourged by the Roman authority. That's why the centurion immediately went to the commander to warn him because he would have been in big trouble if he had scourged Paul because it's against the law. 
So my point again is notice here that Paul does not simply allow himself to suffer. He actually asserts his rights as a Roman citizen to prevent his suffering. Often there is this romanticism in Christianity of being martyred. Oh, I would be martyred for the Lord. And I do not say that to besmirch those who were actually martyred. Those were good and good men and women for the most part. But there is this love affair with the martyrs. It is seen in the history of Christianity. And we need to realize God may not want you to be martyred. God may not want you to be martyred. That is not the only way to serve him or bring him glory. He may want you to continue to live as he has more for you to do. Do not just be looking for martyrdom. Because that's big in Christianity. And by the way, I think most Christians in our day who claim how they would love to be and willing to be martyred in our day would actually not do it. Nor would they ever be in jeopardy of actually being martyred. Because what I've seen with most modern day Christians is a severe propensity to come up with reasons to justify their always obeying the state. They will never come into conflict with the state because they can always find a reason to justify their action. Even when it came to putting in a pinch of incense with emperor worship, there are many of the early Christians found, oh, it's just a pinch of incense. There were huge debates amongst the Christians afterwards because others, some were martyred because they wouldn't put the pinch of incense in. And then after the emperor worship thing passed, these other people wanted to come back into Christianity. Should they be allowed in? Blah, blah, blah. I just think, most Christians today always come up with a reason to obey the state. You know, like they're the same people who would say to Daniel, remember Daniel, when he found out you couldn't pray to the Lord for 30 days, what did he do? He went to his house. He went by the window so people could see him. He knelt down so no one could question what he was doing. And he did it three times to make sure he was caught. <laughs> so these Christians today would say, oh, Daniel, you should not have done that. The king's order is only 30 days long. The stay-at-home order is only 60 days long. You should just, you're going to hurt your witness. You're going to besmirch the name of the Lord. You should always bow down. And They can always come up with a thousand reasons to justify their obedience. To They will never come into conflict with the state. You do understand the vast majority of martyrs were never martyred because they simply believed in Jesus. You do realize that. They were martyred because the state said one thing, God's word says another thing, and they obeyed God rather than man. That's what brought them into conflict with the state. So, here Paul does not just suffer. And remember 2 Corinthians 11, when he knew that the governor wanted to arrest him? And mistreat him? What did he do? Did he just submit to it? No, he fled down the side of a wall in a basket so he could escape the magistrate. God does not just want you to be martyred. He does not always want you to just suffer. 
And remember, Paul was someone who had been beaten by the Jewish authorities with 39 lashes and with rods three times by the Roman authorities. He knew physical suffering. Yet here, he invokes his Roman citizenship because this would be a suffering of a different kind. And it was also unlawful what they were about to do with him. It was against the law, unlike the other times, the 39 lashes, the three times with rods. The authorities did have lawful authority to inflict that upon him. But here they did not have lawful authority. And this is why the centurion went quickly to the commander after Paul brought up his Roman citizenship. The Roman authority here planned to scourge him. The weapon used in such a situation was the flagellum. It was leather strands attached to a wooden handle of sorts. It had pieces of metal and bone embedded within the leather. Its use often crippled you for the rest of your life, and at times it actually killed you. This was much more severe than the whip and the rods of prior suffering Paul had endured, which the authorities had a legal right to inflict upon Paul. The commander was going to try and get to the truth through torturing Paul. Roman citizens were exempt from examination by torture. The laws of Rome, particularly the Valerian and Portian laws, which were buttressed by the edicts of Augustus, made clear that trials for Roman citizens had to entail a formulation of crimes and penalties, a formal accusation laid against them, and a trial or hearing before a Roman magistrate and his advisory cabinet. Only then could they be scourged, and none of that had happened here. And Paul knew it, and so he says to the centurion, as he's being bound with the thongs, is it right to do this to a Roman? Paul asserts his rights as a Roman citizen to stop an injustice against his own person. Paul asserts his rights as a Roman citizen to stop an injustice against his own person. Christians who tell you you should just suffer, respect the authorities, bow to their lawlessness, without a whimper or a stand, are wrong. Here we see what Christian men came to understand in Western civilization, that rights come from God, and one must exercise and protect them. Understand, there is a time just to be quiet and to suffer. But it is not ipso facto every time or even most of the time. Understand also, if you do not take a stand or take to task the authorities when they mistreat and abuse you, you are encouraging them in their lawlessness to mistreat and abuse others. So if you do take a stand and take them to task, you not only check or blunt their lawlessness, but you also help protect those who come afterwards, after you, from being mistreated and abused. When I was beaten by police officers down in Illinois, back in whatever year that was, I'm so old now, 2001 or 2002, I can't remember. I was looking at four years in prison, had a several day long trial, was found not guilty of all charges, thanks be to God. Looking at four years. And then we turned around and we sued them. 
for what they did to me. I had to be taken to the hospital because of the abuse that they inflicted upon me. And so we sue them. And while the lawsuit's going on, here we, this is front page news. When I was arrested, it was front page news in Bloomington, Illinois. And they followed the trial. And then me suing them. <laughs> it was all, all in the news. And when I was arrested first and were waiting trial, my lawyer and myself had several people contact us who had been brutally treated by the police there. And of course, they didn't have a video camera like we did. <laughs> so, and they were trounced and they shared their story. One person had been beaten to death while in their custody just two months earlier. When you sue them, when you stand for what's right, when you stand for your rights, you help other people. Do you understand that? So the Christian who tells you, oh, you shouldn't do that, you should just respect the authorities. No, you don't. They don't care about right or wrong when they're lawless, but they do care about money. And if it involves money, there's a change of behavior. And after I won my case, which I won as a, for Truella's, it was a substantial amount of money, <laughs> um, won my case, it caused a stir, and it also caused a change in the treatment of others by the police department because they don't want to lose money. Do you understand what I'm saying? Very important to understand. So Paul asserts his right. It's Western civilization. Christian men came to understand in Western civilization that rights come from God and one must exercise and protect them. That is, they see that here. Christian men saw that here with Paul. Verse 27. Then the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And Paul said, yes. The commander answered, with a large sum, I obtained the citizenship. See, there were always, in politics, politics is all about money, money. Oh, and did I mention politics is about money? <laughs> so <laughs> it's what makes most men move, not justice or right or wrong. It's money. It's evil. And some Christians say, well, we shouldn't have anything to do with politics because it's so evil. No, that's all the more reason you should have something to do with it. So you bring Christian thought and behavior into that realm. Extremely important to do. So at this time, there were people within the emperor's court who would, if you gave them money, they would confer on you being a Roman citizen. In the beginning, you only became a Roman citizen by valuable service to the realm. So this guy's saying, I... I had to pay a bunch of money to get it. He's thinking Paul, who looks like some scrappy dude, you know, scholars say it was like a besmirchment or a condescending thing when he said that to Paul. But Paul responds and says, but I was born a citizen. And that's how things originally were, that you had to have done some valuable service for the empire, and then you were had conferred upon you citizenship. There was no, like, special clothing other than the toga. Nobody liked wearing the toga, we know from historians, because it was a cumbersome piece of cloth. So they only wore their togas when they were assembled at the Senate or some big public meeting was taking place, and only the citizens could wear it. If you wore the clothing and you weren't supposed to wear the clothing, or you said that you were a citizen and you were not, you could even be given the death penalty. That's how big of a deal it was to be a citizen. 
So someone in Paul's ancestry had done some valuable service to the empire because all of your descendants after that are born citizens. And so this probably had a huge impact upon this commander that Paul was actually born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. Did you catch that? Immediately. It's like, that was a close one. They would have been in huge trouble had they flogged Paul, had they scourged him. So they immediately release him, back away. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman. And because he had bound him, even that was wrong. You know, that they had started the process of flogging him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And that's the end of chapter 22. And so in our next time, we're going to see what Paul has to say during this examination as it will continue before, I believe, the Sanhedrin. Let's bow our heads and pray.